Nikki and I sat on a call yesterday, which was a, an embedded customer connecting into Scotland. Um, we had the embedded customer, we had their ICP building the connection, we had the IDNO who is going to adopt the ICP's work, we had the DNO who is then responsible for interfacing the IDNO to the transmission owner, we had the transmission owner and we had the ESO on the call to discuss the contractual commercial arrangements. The complexity of some of these schemes when it actually comes to build out and, and be able to facilitate all of that information transfer. So if you're going to be constrained, how many people that, that how many people's network that signal actually needs to pass through, it's really huge. So not one to be underestimated. Hello and welcome to the Connectology podcast. Here, Road Knight Taylor's influential team of elite connection specialists and their expert guests help you to better understand distribution and transmission network connections and how to acquire them faster, for less cost and at lower risk. Hello and welcome to this uh, episode of the Connectology podcast. This one we're doing, this is the third of three that we've recorded in the wild here at Rawton Airfield, which is a science museum's um, repository for artifacts. They've got some 340,000 artifacts. We've had a tour. It's been absolutely amazing. So such a good place for um, for an off-site team day. Um, I can't recommend it more. And also it's got the very first large-scale project um, that I uh, was uh, heavily involved in uh, securing the capacity for. So there's a 65 megawatt solar farm here that I'm quite proud of um, because this is where it all started really, where the Road Knight Taylor journey started some 12 years ago, which was before Road Knight Taylor side, but there you go. But anyway, um, I've sat down and listened to uh, three podcasts being recorded that I wasn't involved in. I've just been desperate to jump in and, and ask the stupid questions that that people, lay people like me, um, would would um, would ask. And so now I get to do it on a subject which is uh, Beggar and Bella, which I know that loads of you will be really familiar with Beggars and Bellas and will know the difference between the two. Uh, some of you will be more like me in that not understanding the difference between the two. And, and I know it is a huge subject and people can get um, the, the choice of Beggar Bella wrong. So I think hopefully we're going to understand a bit about the difference between the two and, and why you should choose one, not the other. And also, if you're doing a beggar, <laughs> can you get it wrong? And, and how? And, you, and if you're doing a Bella, um, likewise, really. So um, first of all, I, who I'm joined by, uh, Catherine Cleary and Pete Aston, two of the connectologists. Um, and I'm going to start by, as I normally do, just asking a, a sort of a really simple question. And I think I'm asking Pete this because we're going to put him under pressure. Um, what is a beggar and what's a bella? And are you also doing the difference between the two or is that going to be Catherine? That's definitely Catherine. All right. <laughs> so you're just, you're just going to read out the acronym, right? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, then, my, then my job's done, Hugh. Um, so uh, I, I guess in essence, they are... Uh, agreements that um, generators connected into the distribution uh, network can make with um, the transmission uh, electricity system operator, um, and there are they can be optional for some generators, uh, but they are obligatory for other generators as well. And maybe Catherine will go into that in a bit more detail. So, so the two the two different uh, schemes. So, Beggar is bilateral embedded generator agreements. Catherine's going to nod, make sure yeah. I get it right. Bella stands for, I've been practicing this, Go. bilateral embedded license exemptable large generator agreement. Yeah. Did I get it right? Well yeah. done. Yeah. Well done. Bit of a mouthful. Is that it? That's you done. That's me done. Okay, great. <laughs> 
Do you want to expand on that, please? <laughs> so, so they're both for large generators. That's probably what, what, what you should get from the acronyms. Um, so a large generator um, is someone who is um, a certain megawatt size and above. Now, this is the tricky bit. Large is 100 megawatts and above in England and Wales. Fairly straightforward. Um, in Scotland, there are two thresholds. Um, Southern Scotland, you have to be 30 megawatts and above to be classed as large. And Northern Scotland, if you are 10 megawatts and above, you're classed as large. So th this can apply to quite small embedded power stations um, up in, um, well, sorry, small embedded generators up in Scotland. If you are large, you must hold either a beggar or a bella agreement. In Scotland, uh, if you're in that zone between 10 or 30 and 100 megawatts, you have the choice. You can either have a bella or a beggar. Um, once you get to 100 megawatts, you are no longer license exemptable. So the end of Pete's long acronym falls away. And that's the end of the Bella. You can't have a Bella if you are 100 megawatts or above, um, full stop, even if you're in Scotland. So then you have to have a beggar. For the same rationale, uh, large generators in England and Wales who are 100 megawatts and above can't have a Bella. So Bellas are just a Scottish thing for these people who fall in this bracket of 10 to 30 megawatts up to 100 megawatts. But you can also, if you are uh, less than a large generator, size, you can apply for a, a, a beggar um, or a bella. You can um, opt in. You yeah. can opt in. There are quite some quite small generators, actually, that have, have opted in for, for beggars and, and bellas for reasons which might come out in a minute. But um, you know, essentially, um, access to the transmission system is one of the main issues, you, uh, advantages you get. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that, that's what um, the, the beggar agreements came about. So um, beggar um, basically set up uh, an agreement between the embedded generator and the ESO that gave that generator tech, so transmission entry capacity. Tech is, you know, your sort of your golden right to be able to export power onto the electricity network. So if you have 100 megawatts of tech, um, then you are allowed to generate 100 megawatts of tech and export it onto the electricity and um, the, the, the ESO's network uh, transmission um, in all scenarios. Um, if the ESO wants to constrain you, the only the, the, the mechanisms they have for doing that um, are, are commercial, essentially. So um, bids and offers um, in the balancing mechanism. So they pay to, to, to actually constrain that generation. Um, or they might have some other kind of uh, mechanisms agreed directly with you, um, like paid into trips or something like that. So effectively, that tech gives you your guaranteed right to be able to, to export. Bellas, on the other hand, do not have tech. Bellas, basically, you could think of almost as like a, a beggar light. Um, so Bellas kind of came into fruition because um, it was identified that a beggar um, is actually quite, a, you know, a commercially and contractually arduous agreement to go into. You have to do things like comply with grid code, with the balancing and settlement code. So you might need more in terms of compensation equipment, electrical equipment on site. You need more equipment in terms of metering and comms. Um, you start needing a dreaded fax machine, you know, um, to be able to talk to National Grid. Um, so there are actually quite a few bars to jump over uh, to, to, in order to, to have a beggar agreement. And if you're 10 megawatts, you know, up in the north of Scotland, that feels like a lot of onus to put on a small wind farm. Um, and so the idea of a Bella was it was it was sort of, you know, trying to make those requirements as light touch as possible. So it said, well, actually, if you don't have tech, you don't need to be a, a, a balancing mechanism unit. So you don't need to participate in the BM. You don't need so much of that complicated metering stuff. We can sort of identify the kind of basic grid code elements that you need to meet, but you maybe you don't need to do some of the additional um, stuff. So it really kind of simplified the, the agreements. So if you wanted your, your life to be as straightforward as possible, you weren't worried about whether or not you had tech. 
the Bella was a kind of obvious choice. But there is this quite significant contractual disagreement, a difference uh, in terms of whether or not you have transmission access. And it's, and it's interesting, with, with the advert on G99 as well, um, so, so G99 has got some concepts of small, medium, large, with medium power stations, which is sort of 50 up to 100 megawatts, some of the criteria that included in G99 start pushing you towards more that, that sort of grid code level of compliance anyway. Yeah. So the sort of barrier for jumping from not being a beggar to being a beggar customer in terms of all those things Catherine was just outlining have uh, uh, maybe shrunk a little bit. So it's not maybe such a big step for a 50, 60 megawatt scheme in England and Wales to actually comply with bigger requirements now than it used to be. Yeah, so your your G99 type Cs and type Ds, you know, actually um, have a lot of the same technical requirements as, as full grid code. So people are already meeting those technical requirements. Just a question from me. You were talking about it gives embedded generators access to the transmission network. So where does this differ from project progression under Appendix G? So it's an either or. So if you held a, a, a Bella or a beggar, you do not go through the project progression process. So when you come to assess your transmission impact for that project, um, the, the DNA will essentially look at, is this project a small power station? In which case, unless they've opted into one of these agreements, I'm going to have to do a project progression for them or, or add them onto my Appendix G. Um, if they're a large power station um, and they've got a Bella or a beggar, then that whole process for assessing the transmission impact, deciding are there any transmission reinforcements, what's my connection date going to be, are there any securities and liabilities, all of that is done through your Bella or your beggar. So the DNO no longer submits you into their project progression. Although, although interestingly, I have talked to DNOs and National Grid about this before, that I think if, if, a, if an embedded customer applies for a beggar, the National Grid ESO will ask the DNO for some sort of a project progression. Te- technically, or, or te- I think they'll ask for a mod app. A technical, not- technical information of some kind or other yeah. to be given from the tra- distribution company to the transmission company. Yeah, there is. Yeah, Pete's, Pete's called me out there. There is there is a requirement, actually, technically, for a, a DNO to submit a mod app which accompanies the Bella or Beggar application. We're, we're definitely getting into the techie details here. Um, but um, that's quite a sort of straightforward, almost automatic process um, that happens to but really... But it still requires a DNO to pull their finger out and provide some <laughs> so, information. So you're, you're, not, you're not bypassing the, the kind of slow train that everyone's on around project progression uh, you could be historically um that has been one of the reasons that people have opted for beggars um uh, actually it's been often to be able to sort of control that conversation perhaps request specific uh non-firm access arrangements so like intertrips for example there was a, a time kind of going back quite a few years now when the scottish tos um, at, would would normally assume that a DNO, if they were just submitting a, a, a statement of works, as was back then, that that meant that they they would assess firm capacity at GSPs. They didn't sort of do non-firm and active network management. Um, so if if you wanted to not trigger transformer upgrades, one of the options was to kind of bypass that system by applying for a beggar. But now we are probably seeing a more coordinated system, which means that because, as Pete says, the DNO does have to send something in which goes with your beggar. Um, you're less likely to just bypass a, a kind of and I mod app queue. The DNO would have to have submitted a project progression for everyone who was ahead of you in the DNO queue before they then submit the mod app details for. So the, you wouldn't you wouldn't be queue jumping. It's it's very challenging actually to work out exactly how it all happens. 
in terms yeah, I think, of I think we've, uh, we've, we've gone to a place I wasn't expecting us to go to. I, um, I, I think the, um, <laughs> there probably is an element of queue jumping because what a DNO cannot do is if it has multiple uh, large schemes who've accepted their connections, it can't, you know, it, there will be a milestone to say you, 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 know, you are responsible for submitting your Bella or your Bega application within a certain time frame. But a lot of customers don't. They, you know, they either don't understand this process or they don't want to spend that next application fee. And so there are quite a few schemes which are accepted at distribution level but are not contracted with the ESO with their Bella or Bega. And it is possible to queue jump those, you know. So effectively, if you've got a couple of schemes ahead of you who haven't submitted their Bella or Bega, you know, can't do anything about that. They can't submit a mod app for them on their behalf without that Bella or Bega going in. So if you then submit your Bella or Bega, um, then that the DNA will will submit a mod app for you. So, so there is quite a degree of being on this in terms of queue optimization. So getting your getting your foot in the grid queue. Exactly. And and now here's a question that I'm sure that everybody listening knows the answer to anyway. So I'm just going to be my last one just demonstrating my ignorance. Do I have to apply to my distribution network operator with a G99 before I submit a beggar or Bella? You can do it at exactly the same time. You cannot submit a beggar or a Bella first. That will, the process will fall over um, because that DNA won't know anything about you. Um, and when Grid come back to them and say, can you just have the mod app to confirm that this, this generator is contracted with you? They'll say, what generator? Um, so you can do it in parallel with, with very careful communication We'd probably always say go to the DNO first, even if you're going to submit at Beggar or Bella, you know, before you've got your offer back, um, which is quite risky, you know, because you might get a non-viable DNO offer. Um, but but you might decide to take that risk if you thought that the transmission queue was the really critical factor. Yeah, no, it's worth saying, you know, Beggar applications aren't cheap. I think um, that's seventeen and a half thousand. Yeah, sort of so region. significantly more than a DNO application. Sure, but but equivalent to project progression if it's not being shared by. Yes, yeah, parties, more or less, that, yeah. That, that kind of deal. Good. If you're liking this podcast so far, you may want to pop over to the Connectology page on Road Knight Taylor's website and sign up to the Connectology newsletter for much more know-how, insight, and thought leadership in electricity network connections. The link to this is in the description. Don't miss out on any of the articles, explainers, videos, webinars, and podcasts that Road Knight Taylor's connectologists share to give you an edge and help you overcome your grid frustrations. Oh, uh, one more question, to, just to show my ignorance. Can you flip-flop between the two, between Beggar and Bella? There are a number of projects which have uh, probably the most recent, mo most examples that we've seen recently have been projects moving from Bella agreements to beggar agreements. Um, that is a process which is now a relatively well-trodden path. Um, I think there are some comments about whether you can go from a Bella back to a beggar and also how that changes once you're actually energized and contracted as a scheme. Um, so yeah, there are some considerations there. It's worth pointing out to anyone in that position that unfortunately the the, the connection portal, so National Grid's application portal, which all applications go through, does not handle this well. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this is one of the examples when you really do need to pick up the phone or email your customer account manager. Talking pick up the phone. Um, Pete, would you like to phone a friend on this one? Uh, what, Philip Bale? Yeah, would you like to phone? Uh, yeah, we can phone a friend, Philip. Uh, jo join in the conversation because Philip is, was just showing me a, is a, a web mic page. turned on? So there was a publication which basically predated that said, I think it was 2005, October 2005, that anyone that originally opted for a Bella could switch to Beggar and vice versa. Um, ultimately, if you want to change from a Beggar to a Bella, you can now do it but you would be seen as a new applicant. 
which basically then causes potentially a lot of um, challenges in terms of the connection itself. So I think it a is new technically at distribution at transmission level. At transmission. So right. effectively, they would reassess your um, if you went from a beggar to a bella, they would reassess your bella as though you were a brand new customer. But that's hilarious. On... So Catherine's just run around behind Philip and is looking at that same web page. <laughs> Catherine, what's your thinking on that? Thank you, Philip. That's great. Oh, I think there's, um, it feels like it's almost like case law. I um, Because a lot of this was set out um, 20 years ago when, when we had the sort of transition to the current better arrangements. Um, I think that now, I think there might be some updated customer experience. Um, so maybe this is a call out to the ESA, if anyone's listening uh, from the customer uh, connections team, the ESA wants to shout out as to whether you think it's an acceptable change to change from a, a beggar back to a bella um, post-contract uh, sign. I, I think it probably is, Philip, but but that is interesting that there is some uh, there is some some wording that suggests it isn't. I am uh, stating we'll, we'll, 2006 we'll, case law here. So <laughs> right, 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 right. it's nearly 20 years. So I'll tell you what years. I'll do. We'll, we'll, we'll put a link to that document, Philip, if, that, if that's all right. We'll put a link to that in the description um, and it would be good. Maybe you guys can have a debate next time you're with the ESO shooting the breeze. I think that sounds excellent, Hugh. That the um, there is one last point which we probably should get across, but uh, key differences between bellers and beggars. So, so we talked about the fact that beggars have tech and the fact that that gives them the right to export onto the transmission system. Um, obviously, the question we often get asked is, does that mean if I have a beller, I'm going to get constrained all the time because the ESO can constrain me for free, whereas they would have to pay a beggar to turn off? Um, and that's quite a common question. So. It probably is just worth us putting out there that although that that is technically true, that ESO can issue constraint instructions directly to bellers to tell them to turn down. Um, the way that they have to do that um, is through something called a NISM, so a notification of insufficient system margin. It's quite a formalized process, this. We do have NISMs, but it's quite a rare occurrence. So we have had a few over the last few years. Um, it's not something that happens every other month. Um, and it tends to be something that's quite a lot of industry scrutiny of, um, particularly from the regulator. So, so there isn't necessarily this huge kind of contractual risk around Bellas, or the, or the contractual risk around Bellas is, is perhaps not as significant in reality as people perceive it. So just because so that's a common question that gets asked. Yeah, so but that, that's an interesting point, because you must be doing due diligence on a lot of schemes that have beggars or Bellas. And so what, what are you looking for when you're carrying out DD on those projects? It's normally making sure that the customer has a plan as to how they're going to operate the asset. So this is not to say, you know, neither is the wrong choice. It's, there are perfectly valid schemes with both. Um, and, and, but the, the right choice for a specific project is all about how you're planning to operate that asset. The really big thing, which I think has also changed, is battery assets. Far more people want those batteries to be in the balancing mechanism. It's a part of their revenue stack. So if you want to be in the BM, by all means, go for a beggar. You know, that is the standard route to get you into the BM. There are, you know, some weird quirky things that mean you can have a Bella and then apply for, for balancing mechanism, uh, sort of market access. Um, but but the straightforward path is absolutely to have a beggar. So how do you want to operate that asset? If you're going to be in the balancing market anyway, doing that kind of half hour by half hour notifications international grid around your power output, um, then a beggar is a sort of, you know, pretty obvious choice. Um, if you're, uh, really a kind of fit and forget asset. You know, it's a wind farm and you just want it to generate, um, you know, maybe you've got a CFD solar farm. Um, you're not going to kind of play that in the market um, in the same way. It's a, you're just going to let that, that renewable asset generate when it can. Um, maybe a Bella is a more appropriate sort of, you know, fit and forget minimum technical requirements solution. 
And Hugh, just to say that there is a really good presentation on National Grid's ESO's website for what NISMs are and the description of them. So maybe we can put a link out for that as well also. Link in the description. I think something else in terms of due diligence is just looking at the the interactions between the beggar offer and the DNO offer. So certainly in Scotland, um, when you get a beggar offer, they don't include the costs uh, of works that go on within the the substation. So so the um, Scottish TO will have given those costs to the DNO, and the DNO then gives you an offer variation that includes those costs. So sort of a bit clunky. Um, yeah, so you just got to make sure that when the beggar offer comes back and it doesn't, and it says zero pounds, you go, oh, goody. And then you, you get a, a variation from the DNO that says, and now it's 600,000 for your intertripping. So you just got to make sure that everything's sort of tied up together. Same goes for transmission cancellation charges. So your securities and liabilities, you'll need to see both what comes back from the beggar from National Grid and add that on to the the security statements you'll also get from the DNO. And I have seen in some circumstances that the DNO chooses not to pass on certain aspects of those costs or the risks to customers as well, including things like transformer refunds in terms of going through if they get reused. So it's um, fairly key in terms of understanding exactly how much applies to you and having the conversation with the distribution company also. Cool. Is there anything that we've missed or have we just exhausted beggars and bellers? I think we've probably talked more about bellers and beggars than we have done for a while. Uh, it's pretty worth saying a beggar application looks fairly similar to a you know a direct transmission connection application. So you've, you've got to put pull together quite a lot of information um, for that application. So it's, it's not necessarily for the faint-hearted yeah, I, I guess that's something that, that that I was thinking before this, and that's a couple of questions. First of all, can is there a good beggar or Bella application and a not so good one? What, you know, what what's what what should you be looking out for in in terms of um, a, a, an application that is going to give you what you need for the investment that you or um, whoever your project or acquirer is going to be making? Yeah, yeah I think there is definitely a good and a bad version of a of, of either a bad or a bagger application because on the one hand as pete says there's quite a lot of technical detail that needs to go in so you have to complete what's what's called the data registration code the drc so that's kind of a big spreadsheet full of things like impedance data and stuff like that for your generators and transformers but aside from that technical information actually these agreements are commercial so you are asked for commercial sort of information and that is things like you know deciding what you want your tech to be or how much transmission export capacity do you want you know which doesn't have to be the same as the installed capacity as the generator. So, you know, there are some kind of considerations there. And the main one is you are asked whether you want um, essentially a firm connection or whether you would be happy to accept what's known as a design variation in kind of perhaps colloquial terminology, non-firm, um, but if, if effectively where you're specifying that you are happy to be restricted um, in certain outage conditions so you can get restrictions on availability. This is really key because it comes up time and time again where, for example, you're applying and you know the GSP you're sitting under is constrained. So in an M-1 situation, you need an intertrip, for example, with those transformers. If you don't tick the right boxes, if you don't write those design variation requirements correctly, you'll come back with an offer which is 10 years later than you want You know, with, um, with new grid transformer upgrade costs in it. So so you really do need to ask for the right thing. And that's perhaps less intuitive than it is in some of the G99 application forms. So, so is this more a form-filling exercise than G99, which I mean, which we have conversations all the time, right? That, that a G99 application is not a form-filling exercise. And that's a you know, sort of a big 
uh, conceptual mistake that is made within the industry generally that that it is a form filling exercise whereas what we think is a way of of selling a connection solution and and is it that it's more form filling or is there the opportunity to sell the connection solution or is it around this these commercial arrangements and getting those wrong on a site by site basis can cost you millions or I, tens I think of millions it's, it's definitely worth noting that you're not looking at a connection solution so because your connection is to the DNA. Um, but you are looking, like Catherine said, at what are the implications of whether you've got firm access to the transmission system or non-firm access. Um, so that, that's probably one of the main things that you're looking at in, the, in these beggar Bell applications is how are you prepared to be in relation to sort of outages and constraints on the transmission system? So, so it, it's got a slightly different flavor to putting a DNA application in in that respect, um, but you you are still needing to have that liaison with with the transmission company as to what you want to achieve from this. And, and, and that, it's pretty that, key, isn't it? That, that you know that actually that is a it's the starting point of that commercial negotiation, the application that you submit in. So, you know, you, you pay all this money, you know, almost £20,000, you get an offer back and the gra- the only grounds for challenging what you get back in that offer or if you can say, no, you've offered me a non-firm connection with restrictions on availability as long as your arm and I asked for a firm connection because I did tick the following boxes and I did write the following explanatory statement as to how I wanted that connection to be designed. So, you know, it is all about kind of like filling your arsenal with the best possible success strategy in order to be able to challenge anything that then comes back from the TO. And if you get it wrong, after you've accepted the offer, you'd have to do a mod up. Yeah. Which costs money. So, you know. And might change your connection date. You yeah. Know? You might say, oh, well, if you wanted that, you know, it's, uh, it's. If I'm a development director, surely I would know whether or not for whatever projects I happen to be developing, whether it's storage projects or it might be hydro, whatever it might be, I would know what the level of firmness so whether i tick that box or not and that's form filling right ticking in a box i want firm i want non-firm could you help me understand why there's additional complexity around this point so i don't think it's at all obvious as to why you would know whether you you might want firm but are you prepared to pay and wait for firm so do you want a firm connection even if it's going to take the next 20 years you know you might have to secure 50 million pounds worth of reinforcement you know we're talking about really significant sums here so it's it's not really obvious without someone having done a reasonable amount of grid connection feasibility and due diligence to understand what the most economic sort of technically acceptable solution is for your project so Having that work done to understand the implication on the connection cost and time frame of putting that tick in the box, as much as the implication on the generator of being firm or non-firm. And I think, and what you would realize once you did that on a few of your projects is that you're not going to put that tick in that box in very many cases, in most cases. So it's either a tick box to say, I'd like firm, or it's a text box to say how you would like your connection to have a design variation to the security and quality of supply standards that we have in the UK. That is not, a, you can't just tick that box. You have to say, how do you want this to be varied? So you then need to know actually what is the variation from the SQSS conditions. So it might be that variation is that you're requesting an intertrip in the advantage of the outage of a specific transformer. So you're starting to write some quite technical information into that application form to sort of sell a, a solution to the transmission access issue at that particular GSP. 
might be that you're actually starting to get way more complicated than that and you're prepared to be non-firm for several 1-3-2KB circuit outages, but not you know, upstream of the 1-3-2KB network. So it really does get quite involved. And it could also have an implication in terms of where the MITS node is for that specific connection, as Catherine said earlier, how much you have to pay for, how much you may have to securitize for, and what the potential delay on your connection date could be. So it's a, it's a very fine mixture of all of those with a lot of technical understanding to ultimately make a decision in terms of what is the best option for you. So when you guys are carrying out connection off reviews or due diligence, have you ever done a connection off review for a beggar or a bella or due diligence on a scheme that's got a, an accepted beggar or bella and just gone, oh, no, they shouldn't have taken that box. Say most of the time. Okay. It's, so it's an easy mistake to make. It is an easy mistake to make because not unreasonably, a lot of people, you know, you're making this application. You don't, you don't know what the transmission constraints are in huge degrees of detail. And, and neither would you be likely these days to have, you know, a, a perfect pre-application call uh, where a TO will tell you, you know, if you don't tick this box or if you do, then the impact is going to be X, Y, and Z. So, you know, we don't expect people to have a kind of a crystal ball. It, it's understandable that that gets sort of submitted, that application gets submitted without all of that work being done because that person may not be aware that actually there are such significant constraints in that area. The offer comes back and then it's clear that there's some work to do and actually, you know, the, the design solution um, for the transmission access bit does need to be be looked at. And, and and one of the things with the connection of review or due diligence is then trying to understand, well, if you, if you have got a non-firm access connection, what's the implications of it? You know, like Catherine's saying, how many circuits is it that you get tripped off for or how many transformer outages you get tripped off for what's what's the historical outage profile over the last 10 years what's that going to look like for you over the next 15 years so it's trying to get an understanding of those constraints that you are sort of opting for because you're not willing to wait for or pay for a firm connection so there's always a cost you know and you're then just weighing up uh, the difference between the two and I think also, I mean, I've also seen schemes which have died because of um, beggars that have gone in that have asked for one thing and then up coming out with significant constraints. I think obviously there's the option of going for the firm connection, the non, the variation, and potentially also a temporary variation before a firm connection comes through. And equally, some of these times it needs engagement with the um, transmission operator to understand would they permit that, what would be the cost compromises in terms of doing that, and ultimately would that resolve a scheme. It's, it's very difficult things to do in terms of trying to work out what the best answer is. Cool. It sounds very different to a G99 application, which you know we know the greater the level of expertise that you put at G99 applications across a portfolio, then the, the greater the outcomes that you're going to achieve. And it kind of sounds... Whilst it's very different for a beggar and bella, but it's a similar kind of thing. The greater a level of expertise and the, the diligence, not talking about due diligence, but the diligence that you put in to understanding that network um, and engaging um, with the, the ESO, potentially the greater the outcome that you're going to get. And that could be worth millions. Catherine, you were... I was going to jump in and say, actually, it probably is worth reminding people, essentially, these are kind of tri-party discussions. So, you know, you are applying to the ESO, but you are trying to sell that technical solution or constraint that you're happy with to a TO, a transmission owner. So, you know, say your, your NGET or SSE transmission or Scottish Power Transmission. Um, and, and often it can be, you know, we've seen schemes which have been frustrated by the fact that they did put the right thing. They put brilliant amounts of information in the form. The form didn't get passed on to the TOs 
engineer. So they've come back with a, a, a solution which is, doesn't actually match what the customer had requested. And, and sometimes the DNO needs to be involved in passing on a constraint. So, so there's an interface between the transmission company issuing a constraint signal and that being picked up by the DNO, who then has to send that constraint signal on to you as an embedded distribution customer. I can see Hugh's mind is slightly boggling already. No, I think no. as an example, <laughs> Nikki and I sat on a call yesterday, which was a an embedded customer connecting into Scotland. Um, we had the embedded customer, we had their ICP building the connection, we had the IDNO who is going to adopt the ICP's work, we had the DNO who is then responsible for interfacing the IDNO to the transmission owner, we had the transmission owner and we had the ESO on the call to discuss the contractual commercial arrangements. The complexity of some of these schemes when it actually comes to build out and, and be able to facilitate all of that information transfer, so if you're going to be constrained, how many people that, that how many people's network that signal actually needs to pass through is really huge, so not one to be underestimated. Could we summarise in that you shouldn't really leave this to chance? Don't leave yeah. it to chance. <laughs> <laughs> Don't leave it to chance. Good. Well, I particularly enjoyed that, um, partly because we phoned a friend and got Philip in, um, which is great. Thank you, um, both you two, uh, Catherine and Pete, um, as well. I thoroughly enjoyed that. It's really hot in here. So we're going to finish this and then leg it outside into the 30 degree heat. So thanks, everybody. See you next time. Bye. Thanks, Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Connectology podcast. If you found it helpful, please share it with any of your colleagues or connections you think may be interested. And please do subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your content. You can find out more about our services at roadnighttaylor.co.uk, link in the description, where you can also sign up to our free Connectology newsletter for more news and thought leadership in network connections. If, during this podcast, you found yourself wondering what it would be like to have a Road Knight Taylor connectologist in your life, please do email laura at roadnighttaylor.co.uk to find out how their game-changing skills and insight can change the game for you too.